How much do you know about pregnancy and alcohol? The reality may surprise you. Alcohol exposure while in the womb may cause fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in unborn children. It may lead to lifelong physical and or neurodevelopmental impairments such as problems with memory, attention, cause and effect reasoning, and difficulties in adapting to situations. For such an impactful disorder, it is rarely spoken about in the popular media. This podcast will take you behind the scenes to chat with the people who understand FASD. This is Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. In this episode of No FASD Australia's podcast series, we are addressing one of the more problematic issues that can confront parents and carers of youth who have FASD, that of interactions between their child and the criminal justice system. We must emphasise that no one should assume that every individual with FASD will end up entangled in the criminal justice system. However, when executive functioning is affected, when impulsivity and an inability to predict consequences are evident, this can and does occur and is an issue of real concern in the FASD community. The guest on today's interview mentions a couple of terms that we'd like to clarify at the outset. One of the terms mentioned is ableist. This refers to the notion of ableism, which is discrimination and social prejudice against people with disabilities based on the belief that typical abilities are superior. This reflects a belief that people with disabilities are inferior and focuses on the disability as defining the person. Another term that is mentioned is Banksia. This refers to the Banksia Hill Juvenile Detention Centre in Perth, Western Australia. A specialist prevalence study was conducted there, which revealed that 36% of the youth in that detention centre had FASD. This is a much higher incidence of FASD than has been recorded in any other prevalence studies conducted globally on general populations. We hope you find information shared in this podcast useful. And do remember that if this topic raises particular concerns, No FASD's helpline service is available seven days a week in Australia by calling 1800 860 It's now my pleasure to introduce our interviewer, Kurt Lewis, who will introduce you to his guest for this episode. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this brand new episode of Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. My name is Kurt Lewis, your friendly neighbourhood podcaster, and today I'm interviewing another magnificent guest. In this episode, I'm joined by a professor of social work from the University of Otago in New Zealand. She's not only a trained and registered social worker, she is a very passionate FASD advocate. You may recognize her name because she has written a number of research articles and even newspaper articles demanding better treatment for people with FASD in the criminal justice system. I have the absolute pleasure today of introducing Professor Anita Gibbs. How's it going, Anita? Well, kia ora koto. Hello, everyone. It's a beautiful day here in Otipoti, Dunedin, and it's lovely to be able to chat to you from New Zealand. So we're looking good. That makes a change. I hear it's very cold in New Zealand and me being Australian and all. It, it's, Hi. I, I probably have a different sense of these things, I suspect. 
Anita, you originally came from England, though. You, I but, am. Although you are now a very proud New Zealander. If anyone has ever seen Anita's backgrounds, they were always lovely shots of the New Zealand countryside or lakeside, which, whichever takes her fancy. So what drew you to this country? What do you love most about New Zealand? Yeah, I think there were two things. I was looking for work where I could communicate my skills as both a social worker and as a, a sort of criminal justice specialist in social work. So like a kind of criminologist, but with a very strong social work perspective, I could do that here better than in the UK at the time. But also I got a bad case of New Zealanditis having travelled here on holiday and I just fell in love with the the kind of more chilled aspect, the quality of life. And over time, the quality of life, which I think is the open spaces and beauty, which is very good for a neurodiverse family. So I also like the fact that you can basically meet the Prime Minister or somebody of importance pretty much anywhere in a cafe or on the airplane waiting at the airport and you can have a chat with them and you can tell them exactly what you wish to tell them if uh, you want some changes to happen. That's a very unique kind of thing because we can't do that in Australia mainly because, mm. yeah, uh, just so far away. I mean, New Zealand is just a probably much smaller country than Australia is in regards to you know land mass mm. and, you know, just everything's so far away from each other. You just We struggle to see anyone really. And population, of course. (laughs) Population, yes. Bigger population. Mm. But getting down to the nuts and bolts of things, Anita, you are a professor of social work at the University of Otago. What drew you to this area of study and research in the field of social Mm. work? What drew you there? Well, again, I probably emphasize the sort of social work and criminology combo because a lot of my teaching is in the criminology area, but it's informed absolutely by my practitioner focus. My own personal life, in a sense, got me into social work. I'd had a challenging upbringing. I had empathy and I felt I could offer hope to others struggling, shall we say, when I first got into social work. But as I studied it more and really enjoyed studying, I wanted to apply those theories, frameworks and models to real life problems that people live day to day. So I was basically a practitioner first, you know, with a social justice heart, but I did more research and I wanted to then start using that research to highlight the real lived experience of people who were marginalised. So most of my research is focused on, you know, marginalised groups predominantly in the criminal justice system and wanting to apply that to decent sort of real life strategies and interventions. That's very important work, especially marginalised groups. How did you first learn about FASD? Well, it does segue nicely into the FASD. In 2005 and six, my husband and I were assessed and approved to adopt either locally or overseas. In the end, we went overseas to Russia. And basically, during that time of considering the adoption of our, our beautiful Russian young men now, we went down a kind of we rabbit hole, you know, the FASD rabbit hole, where you're looking for three facial features and you go like, nah, they, they don't look like they've got three facial features. That's pretty much the number of it. Of course, we know that to be very small percentages, 10% perhaps at most with three sentinel facial features. We knew when we first met our lads that they had a minimum of ADHD. We just totally could sense that we were age two and three and they were hyperactive and impulsive from absolutely dot one day one and so we were never surprised that they got an ADHD diagnosis not too many years into coming back to live with their forever family. Uh, eventually they got the FASD diagnosis and more recently because we'd always suspected autism for our youngest that was confirmed just a few months back. Taking care of children with FASD have kind of given you a, a, a very you know perspective on as kind of not only as a professional, but as a carer as well. Yes. So, Anita, you've done a lot of work for advocacy, I should say, for people with FASD. 
This includes writing many articles demanding better treatment for people with FASD in the criminal justice system. I've read a, a couple of your articles. They're really good. You know, they take the professional perspective as well as, you know, the carer's perspective and the people with FASD perspective very well and puts it into a informed opinion with information to back it up. What draws you into being an advocate for this particular topic? I know that you you mentioned that you've got the, you know, the carer outlook yeah. as well, as well as the professional. What drew you particularly amalgamating all this, yeah. all this into uh, advocating for it? Well, I think ultimately I was forced into it in some ways because of all the combination of those many hats. I mean, I'm, I wouldn't have described myself as a natural advocate many years ago, but I effectively what happened to our family or what did not happen meant that I had to become an advocate. I mean, we were asking for helps and supports over the years for our young men, our lads, when they were younger. As soon as they reached puberty, of course, things get a, a whole lot worse and chaotic. Uh, we didn't get assessed early enough. And in particular with my youngest son, who's had most involvement with youth justice processes is, you know, his welfare and sensory needs and communication needs ultimately were not catered for early enough. So we kept asking and asking. Of course, during that time, I would upskill myself immensely gleaning as much knowledge as I could, finding out the lie of the land, trying to you know, understand all the aspects of brain domains. And my own son, youngest son, was starting to get into trouble and he was becoming exploited, victimised and essentially became entrenched in the youth justice system. And I realised during that time, so many professionals, court officials, support workers, didn't have a clue about FASD, didn't know what I was talking about. And even neurodisabilities more broadly. So they basically classically punished my son over and over with unreasonable expectations and complex plans that he couldn't ever follow. So we had, you know, several years of chaos with his needs not being met. And to ensure his well-being and, you know, positive growth potential, you know, I had to advocate, I had to use my position as a social worker, a criminology researcher. I had privilege in that respect because I had time actually to undertake extra research and education. I had time to develop some interventions and supports. I had time to run workshops and, and make a difference. I had time to write those newspaper op-eds and, and uh, assorted commentaries. So I think that all coalesced into me being able to, not by choice necessarily, but eventually by choice because I was almost like the last person standing. So I had a position where I could actually reach all these different media, articles, newspapers, you know, soundbite, radios, whatever, I had an opportunity. So I had, you know, I had a privilege that I had to operate because of my vast knowledge, having done 30 years research in criminal justice and welfare, and looking a lot at mental health as well, coercive practices across those systems, understanding those systems intimately, and then seeing how they were played out in my own lived experience and for many, many others, obviously, who were having that mirrored experience. Sometimes I've seen good practices, obviously, in my advocacy and seen that people do well. And I try to encourage that and want to see more of that. And then sometimes poor practices. But I basically want to highlight in my advocacy how we can move forward and, you know, understand vulnerable youth better who are being criminalised quite often because of their neuro disabilities. I find that incredibly frustrating that we're doing that. We have all this information now. It's the 21st century. We should be doing better, especially for mm. people with FASD who are at a disadvantage at every level of the criminal justice system. Mm. Correct. Um, and it just, I imagine you've seen a lot of frustration, but have you seen any positive progress when it comes to, in New Zealand, on pressing the issue in recent times? Has there been any positive progress? Thinking back, in fact, how people become 
entrenched and involved in criminal justice systems. When I think about that kind of predictable trajectory, school to care, prison pipeline, and we're seeing that mirrored in some of our survivor stories during our current uh, Royal Commission for Abuse of Care Inquiry, you know, where there's three or four generations. And what you're seeing is the unidentified group with neurodisabilities who are incredibly vulnerable and then they get locked in to the criminal justice system you know through failing education or education failing them I must say that absolutely education failing them they're not picked up early enough are they to to get the support that they need and there's a certain group of people and so it's whether or not we can actually highlight what's going on for a certain group of people and there's some great researchers in Australia Eileen Badry, Ruth McCausland, uh, Leanne Douse I think and they write a lot about criminalisation process from care to prison pipelines. And they've sort of identified not only is it sort of trauma, not only is it certain factors in terms of being out of home care, it's those who have cognitive disabilities, it's those in specialised placements and residential care in particular, who have obviously stints in residential placements, whether they're justice or care and protection. These are our vulnerable children. And you've got researchers like that. You've got my own experience where I'm sort of pointing out those sort of ableist norms and expectations in society. And we're trying to educate more broadly to put it out there to see if we can actually see positive change and so that those get children get diagnosed earlier. So what I've, I guess I've seen in terms of some of the positive progress, I guess, is we had an action plan developed 2016 to 2019. It's still being operated, even though we haven't actually updated the plan. A lot of those categories of supports and helps, there are actions occurring and we've all been involved in that process, you know, NGOs, individual parents, advocates, individual agencies. We need to see more action systemically, of course. But what I've seen is that things like we had a a bill that was going to be far more punitive. It was called the demerit bill, I think it was, for 16 to 18-year-olds or young ones. And it was going to punish them more, basically. And it was brought by somebody who was trying to create this impression that there was just all these feral youth on the streets causing crime. And we know that's not the case in terms of the statistics. So loads of us submitted to that. So lots of those opportunities to submit around FASD in particular and make a point that children with FASD and youth with FASD become criminalised too easily because their needs are not met early enough. And then they're fast-tracked because they're often in these other circumstances, like out-of-home care, where they're going to be more surveilled and picked on by the police and more arrested and more tracked to formal processes. So I've seen submissions, I've seen websites improve, like the education websites improved to give specific information around FASD. Again, those sort of websites have had other people in our FASDCAN community submit and give their time and actually improve those websites to actually talk about real life practice and strategies for those living with FASD. I'm seeing stuff coming out now about having new residential provisions potentially in the future so that children are not locked away in large detention centres or even care and protection centres that are not fit for purpose, that staff are not well trained enough. So there'll be changes there. Lots and lots of workshops and training caregiver courses, the development of FASD navigators. We've got a few in New Zealand, not many, but specialists who actually are focusing on specifically on helping families get assessments, helping families get ongoing support, helping families be heard, listened to and supported in multi-agency meetings rather than being disbelieved. I'm seeing judges be more aware, giving out sentencing statements and or decisions where they're actually highlighting the need to include FASD or actually use FASD to truly understand the background of the young person coming into the court system or providing, you know, being edicts around being provided communications assistance more frequently, 
for family group conference processes or court processes. Yeah, I mean, I've developed my own new course at Otago, which is basically a course on neurodisabilities across health, welfare and justice systems. And that course, I've got some great corrections, people attending and other professionals attending who are taking back materials straight back into their places of work to implement changes. So it's fantastic. We've had fantastic support from the Disability and Children's Commission. And there have been a whole raft of research projects here in RTRO that have got some funding and they're all underway, like revising the diagnostic guidelines specifically for RTRO. So that will take account of our bicultural context, Tetility of Watangi, the treaty and the principles behind that so that we can prioritise our better, you know, improve our practice for Indigenous and Māori, as well as improved practice across the board in Aotearoa. Lots and lots of different research that has been implemented or halfway through, more PhD and master's students undertaking studies, my own sort of studies with stakeholders and parents. I just haven't got time to write it up because obviously you can tell from what I'm saying, I'm a wee bit busy at times, but um, there have been progress. I mean, obviously we've got a long way to go, but it's good to see between perhaps 2016 when I first started making trips to Canada to learn more. And now I've definitely seen progress, but I want a lot more. It's a random question, but do you think we'll ever get to the point where the needs of people with FASD will be met by the criminal justice system, that they won't find themselves constantly entangled with it? I think we're still waiting for our opportunity to have a prevalence study. So if we can get, you know, of the banks here kind, if we can get a prevalence study in our youth justice systems, we might be able to then have leverage to talk about the sheer vast numbers of those with neuroimpairments in criminal justice. We still haven't got FASD as a fundable disability for our disability support services criteria, if it's alongside ID or if it's intellectual disability or if it's alongside autism, yes, that can attract funding. But fundamentally, we don't have core funding for FASD, even though it's accepted by the Ministry of Health as a disability. So some things have to change. You know, we have to change the culture of New Zealand to recognise the vastness of the problem. Mm. And so that includes you know, the general public, doesn't it? it, includes not just, you know, people working in the field, it's the general public who will eventually go, you know, when I've done generic talks like to alumni at the University of Otago, it's ordinary people that come up to me and say, well, I think I've got somebody in my family that probably has got FASD. And then you see that repeated and repeated and repeated. Then you go, there's a big, it's a social problem that we need to address coherently um, at a bigger level, as well as obviously individuals coming through the criminal justice system who will be disproportionately likely to have FASD. In Australia, we do fund or we fund aspects of FASD, the deficiencies rather than the disorder itself. We uh, we have not done a prevalence study. We don't know how the issue is. And there's still a lot of stigma. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Yeah. that's. I mean, that's probably the same with a number of different countries. Mm. My last question, my big question, yep. this, is, this is the one I ask all my podcast guests, <laughs> what more could we be doing as individuals or we could be doing as a whole society to mm. minimise or remove disadvantage for people with FASD who may become entangled in the criminal justice system? I, I know you've mentioned yeah. a few. Is there any more you wanted to add to that or reinforce? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, I'm a great obviously advocate of making a difference across the board. So it's that, that prevention. We still need to be doing the whole advertising challenges to alcohol marketing and advertising and the accessibility 
to alcohol and the impacts of alcohol, broad sweeping and education of the entire population as to the impacts, obviously, the dangers of drinking whilst pregnant. So that's a broad education, isn't it? After that, I've mentioned we need to accept FASD as a disability. We need to do a lot more early identification. So that's the preschool stuff. But that means we need preschool teachers. We need social workers, doctors, occupational therapists, speech language therapists, support workers. We need them all trained and knowledgeable. So in every single curriculum of training, we need at least FASD 101. And for others who are going to spend a lot of time with children and youth living with FASD, we obviously, they need more intensive training, you know, so that they can actually get to the nub of what it is to live with this disability and what are the best interventions to make a positive difference. And so then we need to train everyone in the criminal justice system, of course, because that naturally follows if we're trying to, first of all, we obviously need to divert the UN Convention, General Comment 19, I think it is, for Convention of Rights of Children talks about the fact that we absolutely need to divert from justice processes those who have FASD, autism, other neurodisabilities. So that needs to be a mission of the police. You know, they really at the outset need to be working really hard to divert children. But of course, if we don't identify them, it's difficult to divert them. So we do need them identified as having neurodisabilities, specifically FASD. But then we need all of those criminal justice folks to get up with the play trained and knowledgeable specifically for FASD and and understand the processes of their alienation and criminalisation through the court processes, which is why we need to get them diverted and and also operate plans of diversion through family group conferences or other ways so that those plans end up in discharge in court. They don't end up in convictions. They always end up in discharge. It doesn't matter how many times they need to keep doing that for youth so that we don't actually have any kids with FASD with, you know, serious criminal records before they're 18. And so therefore, they're at high risk of them being sent to prison if they do one thing post 18. So people also generally need patients, you know, huge amounts of patients. Caregivers should be training, I reckon, and should be appreciative for all that unpaid labour and love. In a sense, they're giving all of their time, but they're experts in their own you know, situations. They can train professionals and professionals need to be humble and want to learn from them because people are generally in the criminal justice system are incredibly intolerant and they get angry when kids just fail a few rules or break a few conditions. And so they penalise them and punish them for that those breakages of rules. Yet we know as parents, that those children are just more likely to, to break the rules. It's just a natural thing, you know, with their impulsivity and their executive functioning challenges. So we need to stop putting barriers in disabled children's paths that increase punishment and exclusion for them. We need to stop before they're getting into trouble. And we need to keep these children in their homes for longer, at school for longer and meaningfully occupied so they're not discriminated. They're not fast-tracked to being locked up. All of us want the best for our children. So yeah, those are some of the things that I would try and want to see happen on a more regular basis. I definitely think we need more knowledge about FASD out there because the lack of knowledge causes a lot of caregiver stress as well as it would be difficult to help yeah. someone with FASD for someone like a speech pathologist or pediatrician who knew mm. nothing about this disorder. Yeah. That's really common. That's It's stupidly common, I think, in some respects. Yeah. Yeah. So it goes back to a lot to base training. So, you know, I'm offering a new course now. It's not necessarily at the base training level yet, but uh, it will hopefully filter into base training for social workers and and other would-be professionals. But we need to see that mirrored across every training establishment for every possible type of profession more and more, not just an hour on this thing that most people call fetal alcohol syndrome, which is so outdated as we know, we want to actually have full courses on what FASD is or certainly, you know, neurodivergent conditions, Mm. but really looking at that from a critical disability perspective utterly. And not only that, just 
as well as law enforcement, police, public defenders, prosecutors, that kind of thing should be brought up to speed with what fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is, how it impacts. Because I remember back when 2019, when I, FASD was just another disorder. I didn't realize what it was. I mean, this was me prior to, yeah, to doing this podcast and I really didn't understand the connections there. I didn't really understand what it meant and how it impacts so many different things, like people who get entangled with criminal justice. It just, it really mm-hmm. opens your mind and it really opens your perspective on and looks at your kind of your actions, how you judge mm. people and how, oh, yeah. how, you know, the stigma can really hurt people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, I know we're, we're finishing up soon, but, you know, when I think about being a parent, of children with FASD is that it changes you forever. I mean, sometimes it can crush parents, but more often than not, it helps you become a better person. You become more tolerant of everyone around you. You Things that used to be important are less important. You don't sweat the, the small stuff. You just actually embrace the beauty of life around you. And you look for the beauty always in your children. And you, you try to share that with others and hope that others will join you in that journey of tolerance and inclusivity. Anita, I'd like to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your knowledge, your perspective, and your energy with the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's always a wonderful privilege to hang out with you, Kurt, and look forward to other opportunities in the future. I'm sure they will. Thank you. Kia Thank you for listening to this episode of Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. Please tune in next week for another episode of Our Little Podcast. If you like this podcast episode, then please show your support by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Every little bit helps. All rights reserved. For more information about FASD, then please go to www.nofasd.org.au.